I mean, I was in, in my bedroom and I had my um, father's 22 rifle and I had it loaded and I was thinking about killing myself. But what, what was so strange is that the minute that I started to turn the gun toward me is when I dropped it and I just sobbed. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Good evening. Hey, I want to welcome Michael Cooney to the Depression Files. Michael is an English instructor at the Minneapolis Community and Technical College here in the Twin Cities. Michael, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Hey, can you tell us uh, just a bit about your job? Sure. So I teach English, and if you teach English in a community college, you teach writing. So that's the bulk of what I do. Um, I've been there since 1995, and I feel really fortunate because I continue to love my job. And what's great about um, MCTC, there, there are a lot of things that are wonderful, but it's primarily the students and uh, their willingness to share their stories with each other and with me. So I've been doing it for a long time, but I feel like I continue to grow and learn, and it's primarily in those interactions. Are there different genres of writing that you work with the students? Yeah, I mean, over the 23 years I've been there, I, I taught creative writing, I taught uh, long-form essay writing, poetry, but... Basically, what I'm teaching now is just your your steady diet of College English 1, College English 2, so um, typical academic essays and research writing. Got a favorite class or favorite course that you've taught? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more senior, so the courses I teach are the courses I like, oh, if I'm completely honest nice, with you. Nice. You know, so I've got... Yeah, I teach face-to-face -face, um, courses that I really, really love because oftentimes for students it's... It's the first course that they're taking at the college. So I get them and they're, they're, they're wide-eyed. Um, I teach an online course, which is uh, an immersive role-playing game that I designed with a, a colleague of mine. And that's, uh, that's incredibly exciting. And I teach, my research writing is, is embedded in Wikipedia. Okay. So the students find articles and they do research and improve Wikipedia articles. So I'm at a stage in my career where the courses that I teach are really, the, they are the ones I want to be teaching. That's awesome. No, it is. Absolutely. Sounds phenomenal. Yeah. What uh, have you, is there any way you could kind of generalize about the differences you see in students these days? Because you've been there, what, almost yeah. 20 years or around 20 years or so? Yeah. yeah that's a great question. I think just based on on Minneapolis's history, what I'm seeing is, if anything, just more of what I started to see back in 95. So when I started in 95, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a third of my students in any given class were results of the war in Yugoslavia. So I had uh, students from Bosnia, from Croatia, from Serbia. Um, and it feels like as I've gone through, um, wherever there's a war, 
two years down the road, I'm going to see students from, from that place. Uh, and that, that remains the same. We're the only college, state college in the, in the state of Minnesota that has a majority of students of color. So that's increased. I'm seeing more students who come into my classroom and are willing to share with me that they're coming out of incarceration. There's over 600 students at the college who are coming that are still on paper. Um, more veterans because we've been engaged <laughs> for yeah, a long time. Right. So those are the things that have changed, but, but in many ways, what's the reason that students are there which is they think college is right for them. They want, they want an opportunity to get a leg up. Uh, those motivations, in large part, haven't changed. Okay, which is great. No, I know, um, as an educator, one of the things that you get that I don't always get at the elementary, middle school, right. and a public school is, like you mentioned, you have eager learners. Right? Yeah. There's the intrinsic motivation. They right. want to learn. Right. Do any of your students? It sounds like several a large number of them may come from traumatic situations you know you mentioned incarceration different wars and veterans um, and refugees I would imagine right, so right. are they willing to open up to you about traumatic situations that they've been through and do they does that manifest in their writing do they write yeah. about that as well absolutely I mean I'm, I it's a story that I've told many times but when I started it at the college in the mid 90s no matter what assignment I would create my students from Yugoslavia were writing about the trauma that they experienced. And it was, it was hard. It was, it was incredibly difficult for me to read these things. I remember reading them at the kitchen table and, and crying. And uh, my wife came up and said, you know, I know this is hard, but they, they need something else from you. They, it's great that you're compassionate, but they need something else from you. So um, that's maybe the thing that's been most long-lasting and enduring. But even, even now, I mean, students who, who are coming out of incarceration, generally African-American males and African-American females and Native Americans, um, it's hard to read. I mean, it's hard to read their stuff because what you're reading is uh, not just an individual's trauma, but it's, it's an indictment of where we are culturally. Mm. So, yeah, and they are willing to share. And in fact, I think what's interesting is if if you create an environment, most of the time they wanna they want to share. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the other students, there's an automatic respect, um, and maybe respect is the wrong word, but they they see something ethical and decent um, about this these honest exchanges. So it just makes for I think it makes for a great classroom. Oh, it must be incredible. Yeah. So do you know what your wife was getting at when she said they need something different from you? I think so. I mean, I think what she was saying is uh, don't make this about you. Mm. And, that was, that, and it's hard because in, in writing, there's always an audience. And so I'm sitting there, and in that moment, I'm the audience, and I'm reacting, and the writing is powerful. But as an instructor, I, I had to, it's not like I had to put walls up, 
but I had to find ways around the wall, through the wall. I had a job to do, and the, and the students wanted me to do the job. They just wanted me to do the job as they were writing about watching their father get shot on a bus. That's what they chose to write about, and it was my job to figure out how to be both empathetic but also instructional in that moment. Mm-hmm. I, I hope... <laughs> I hope I did. I hope I did a good job with it. I, I know I really, really tried. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about another piece when you mentioned how difficult it can be to read their stories. And in my one thing I thought of in my mind was you're not also not just picking up a random paper and reading a sad story. You have a connection to these students and you are teaching these students and you have a relationship with them. So then to read about their challenges and struggles that they've been through has got to make it all the more challenging as their instructor. Challenging, but also rewarding. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of three students that I I had them in College English 1, I had them in College English 2, and I had them in Introduction to Philosophy. So that's a rarity in in the college. It's one of the things that I miss from teaching high school is I would have students for 175 days in college. I get them for 16 weeks and twice, you know, twice a week for 75 minutes, and then I may never see them again. So to have students over that time and to know the, to know the stories that they were writing about in that first class and then to see how they were responding to new learning environments in the other classes, that was incredibly rewarding. One of the students went on and, and got a law degree. Another student um, got a... Uh, a PhD here and returned um, back to Eastern Europe. So, I mean, here's the thing. They were super smart. They did not want to be in the United States. They didn't want to be here. It's just because of foreign policy and, and the things that were happening. They were here, and they were making the most of it. I mean, if anything, it was, it called out, called me out to be even more accountable, if that makes sense. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, really cool to hear about how far some of these students went too, because yeah. I think sometimes in the minds of people, it's like, oh, community college, you get a two-year degree, and you know, and whatnot. But going on for PhDs, becoming lawyers, like, and this is the springboard for right. that is right. is really really cool. Right now, to be fair, <laughs> okay, to be fair, I mean, these are the stories that I remember, and those are the ones that when I'm having a difficult day or a difficult week, these are the stories that I hold on to. But yeah. commu- but some of those stereotypes about community college exist because there's some truth in that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, attrition rates, success rates are not what we want them to be um, because students, for the most part, live really difficult lives. Right. You know, when I, when I went to college, that was my job. That mm-hmm. was my deal. You know, I, I wasn't raising children. I wasn't working 40 hours a week. Um, you know, I wasn't making car payments. I just went to college. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I think is, is challenging about the two-year setting. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. So I know uh, that you have a, a fairly long history uh, regarding depression. Yeah. When would you say uh, depression started for you? That's really clear for me. I was 14. You were four. It's crystal yeah, clear to absolutely. you. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. What is it that makes it so crystal clear? Just because I remember, I remember uh, uh, 
the season. It was springtime. I mean, I remember, I remember when I realized I was, I was in trouble emotionally. Um, and, uh, it's something that I've, that I've, that has stuck with me. So yeah, from 14, um, and then until, until I was 40, which was my last and worst bout of, of depression. So before we jump to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. 40, yeah. <laughs> 14, and, and like you know crystal clear, like you were 14 and you were emotionally in trouble, I think you just described it as. What does that mean? Help oh, us understand uh, that. I was thinking about suicide. Um, this is a hard story to tell, but I think it, it, you know, it's important. Um, I mean, I was in, in my bedroom and I had my um, father's twenty-two rifle and I had it loaded and I was thinking about killing myself. Wow. But what, what was so strange is that the minute that I started to turn the gun toward me is when I dropped it and I just sobbed. And my parents heard me crying and they came upstairs. And um, they, saw, they saw the gun and my dad just took it and set it outside and they just held on to me. And, you know, I, I grew up, we grew up rural, poor. So the idea that there were counselors or things to do that might help, I just, I don't think that was even, I don't think that was a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so there was just a lot of love and attention. And, and I don't really remember how I, how I came out of that place. You know, I remember the place very clearly. How though. about what got you to the point where you would take a gun to yourself? Yeah. Ooh. Um, that's a great question. I think some of it has to do with, with family history. My mom, my mom had a air quotes, nervous breakdown. Uh, and she was hospitalized for three or four or five days. I can't remember. When you were how old? It was probably 10 or 11. And we lived on a 160 acre farm. And I remember when they came home, when my father and mother came home from the hospital, they said, we're moving, we're moving into town. And town was a town of like 300 people. And um, so I think, I think I watched my mother struggle. Uh, I, my father was an alcoholic. And this is my, you know, 1,000 level psycholo- psychology diagnosis. I think, he was, I think he was self-medicating after World War II. And so, I, so I'd watched the two of them. And in that tiny little town, I don't think this is an unusual story, but in that tiny little town, I just felt like the walls were closing in and there was no future. And I was, I was driven in some ways. Um, I'm the fifth of six kids. And I think I had opportunities that, you know, the, the, my older siblings would have, would have died for. Mm. Um, so I, so it's like I could see what was possible, but I just, I didn't, I, I didn't have the imagination. I didn't, I didn't have the wherewithal. And I certainly, my family didn't have the resources to help me to see things differently. So I just, I mean, at 14, and it feels foolish to say it, but I mean, at 14, it just felt like it was a dead end. 
I don't think it's foolish to say at all. I mean, this is how you felt. I, actually, I feel like you were years beyond 14 when you're thinking about the future mm-hmm. and things that are out of reach that you would love to to grasp at but, but can't get there. Yeah. Did your parents, were they, obviously, they find you with a gun and they're shocked, but... Did they have signs ahead of time? Do you think they realized anything was up with you as far as mental health? I don't think so. I mean, you know, they're they're six, six kids. Yeah. And both working, just scraping by, just trying to make payments. And, um, you know, and I I did well in school. My guess is that I was a low, I was a low worry factor at that stage, Mm. you know? Um, were you pretty tight with your siblings? By that time, uh, it was just my younger sister and myself at home. Yeah, and I'm yeah, I was tight then, um, tight now. Uh, but but what's interesting is that we never talked. We never talked about this. In fact, even as I'm talking about this, my palms are sweating. Yeah, because it's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff, and. Even amongst my my siblings, we don't talk about my dad's alcoholism. We don't talk about my mom's nervous breakdown. We don't talk. And I think, so actually when I heard you speak, that was the thing that drew me to this. It's like, I spent so long not talking, and that was like a a piece of luggage weighing 50 pounds that I had to carry around. That's crazy. Mm. And I also think that listening, you know, it's, it is that, it's like that opportunity. It's that thing that you can see and you start to listen and you think, okay, there are pieces of this that don't have to be the way that they are. There are other pieces that are manageable. Um, I just think part of the challenge was dealing in isolation with it. Mm, absolutely. You, you know, my mother. My mother's response was more attention. God bless her. You know, and and I loved it. And she would make a point of eating every meal with us, lingering after supper, talking, constantly checking in. And once I got a driver's license, and and I was, and she would wait up until I got home, and not to not to make sure that I got home. That was part of it. But to talk. Mm. How was your evening? Who were you with? What did you guys do? You know, and so some, some of it might be like surveillance, but I, I honestly think it's, it was her, it may, it may have been her way of talking about her own sense of loneliness, her own sense of desperation, her own encounters with, with mental health. And if she were here, she's been dead since 91, she would, she would be like, I don't, think I even thought those things because there was no vocabulary for it there was no discourse for it so um and my father worked away from home often he by that stage in his life he was working overseas as a road construction worker so I wouldn't see him for long periods of time like how long 14 months at a time whoa yeah Yeah. so your mom was essentially raising six kids on her own a lot. well by that time again by that time there were there were three of us very shortly and then two so yeah she raised the two of us yeah and i remember her you know i was in seventh grade and eating hamburger helper (laughs) whatever i was having and she said so mikey you're gonna go to college 
And I thought, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Because my brothers had gone into the military. Right. And so this is the late 60s, early 70s. Vietnam is happening. And I think my mom had just about had it with worrying about sending her sons abroad. So I got to go to college straight away. My sister got to go to college straight away. Even though I am convinced now, having sent three children to college, that they had no clue what it meant about how they were going to pay for it and about the commitments. And not only that, but about how having a child go to college like that really meant a, a different life and one that they probably weren't going to recognize. They were going to be proud of it, but not necessarily recognize. Do you think that was part of it, hoping that you would be able to help break that cycle? Boy... I think the world of my mother, and if she was thinking that, that just increases my admiration. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I really don't know. I know that late 60s, early 70s, I mean, the world, world went, American culture went through huge changes in the yeah, 60s. Yeah, yeah, And so, and my mom had a high school education, my dad had a high school education, and so they're watching this, they're thinking about it, they're seeing what a college education might offer. Um, and so they, she just said that. And I, you know, I, I thought, okay, cool. I like that idea. What's on TV tonight? You know what I mean? So, right, right. so I, I, I don't think I was appreciative of it in that moment. Yeah. But certainly looking back, I mean, I'm, I'm in awe in many ways of how they were able to pull, pull it together. Yeah. So, pretty impressive. Yeah. Obviously, clearly a very loving family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, too, you mentioned like she had probably had enough of children going into war and imagine if she was still having some of her own mental health right. challenges and then to say goodbye to a kid who's going off to fight right. in a war. Right. Like that could compound right. the fear and the, the sadness. You know, and I think I agree. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I know that my mother um, struggled with was loneliness and so six kids meant that she was never lonely. But then as my older siblings leave, and it's just my sister and I, and she has, I think she had the, again, I don't, I, this is backward psychology. I don't, you know, I, right. but I, I just, I put myself in her shoes and I think, what am I going to do? How am I going to, how am I going to connect now that this group is gone? And she had her mother that lived two miles away and her mother-in-law that lived eight miles away. So it was, it, you know the family the extended family was close knit but i think that's why my why they my mother and father decided to move into this small town because she could look out the window and actually see other human beings yeah, right. you know um, so. the isolation piece is huge for mental health right and I, and i think depression makes us oftentimes isolate and want to isolate and stay away right. even when we know it's better to be out. It's right. better to be around people right. and you just don't. But I think that's the hardest for, for me. Yeah. That was one of the hardest things. Like the last thing I would want to do is see someone. Yeah. Because I thought that they would see right through me. You know? Right. And, and that they would judge me. And, and so the interesting thing is I know looking back that they weren't judging me. I was... I was the one. They didn't have to shame me. I was doing, you know, a great Plenty job by my. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell us, you know, age fourteen, you go through this traumatic situation. 
and your parents find you and kind of love you up and no counseling it sounds like no 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 doctors from there it was just a little extra love yeah and your parents doing what they could and so then did things start to change for you through high school or what was your mental health like through the rest of your high school days so it, um, so through the rest of my high school, I was actually, I think, I, I was good in terms of mental health. I, I'd, found, I'd found a niche in my high school, and I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed school. From, so I, elementary school was in this small town. And then junior high school, back in the day when they called it junior high school, okay, um, was in a much larger town. Where, so I went from 25 classmates to over 400 classmates. And by the time I'm in high school, it's, it's closer to, to 450, 500 classmates. So relatively large school. Um, and I found a niche there. And I'm really lucky because I think large schools like that, even though there's lots of students, it's easy to find yourself alone. You know, I see, I see it all the time. So, um, so I, I found a group. I was involved, um, I ran, so I had, and distance runners are kind of a quirky, quirky group that ought to, if you finish the workout, no one ever says anything, but there's automatic respect. Right. You know, like, you're one of us, you, you did this. So that was great. Um, I was involved in student government, that was great. So pretty darn active. Because I had teachers who pulled me in. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to this day, I, I tell my students stories about these teachers who who really, when I said that my mom and dad couldn't imagine, we were fortunate that we had people around us who could. And, and so for me, it were these teachers who, like I remember my seventh grade English teacher handing back a poem that I'd written, and he said, you could be a poet. And here's the thing. I don't know if he said that to every single other student, <laughs> right. but I know he said it to me, yeah. and it made a difference. It's like, oh, I could be a poet, you know? You know, as an educator, I try to remind teachers all the time the power of our words, and that, I mean, and now you're an English teacher, right? And, yeah. And you still remember that teacher oh. telling you that you could be a poet. And like you said, they may have shared that with others. You might not yeah. have been the only one, but, but that meant an incredible amount for you and gave you a sense of hope and Absolutely. I hope about tomorrow. Like, yeah. oh, there's something else. You know, because up to that point, my choices, like imagining my future was somewhat limited. Um, road construction, farming, work in the grain elevator. Right. Or go to the military because most, well, both of my brothers had gone through the military yep. and they came out and they'd found work in the Twin Cities, which that was like the gold mine. Right. You know, if you can get out of... Outstate Minnesota, at least at this time, and get get a gig in in the Twin Cities. You you sort of had it made. So I had some of that, but but my teachers were really and my coaches were really important in helping, not uh, inviting me into environments, and then helping me as once I got in there. Yeah, so. sounds fantastic. So you graduate high school, mm-hmm. and then did you instantly? Yep. Go right into college. Yeah. And when where'd, st- where'd, <laughs> where'd you go to college? So this is a uh, fun story. So, again, we don't really know what we're doing, right? The family. The family. And, and planning and making right. arrangements for right. college. And I may have spoken with an advisor in my high school, but I don't remember doing it. 
I remember talking with my older buddies who had been on the cross-country team and track team, and they gave me advice. And that was the advice I'd listened to, and those were the goals that I set up in my mind. So I got accepted to a couple of what I know now were good situations, good schools, but I didn't think I could make the cross-country team. So I ended up at a little uh, community college. I can say the name. It doesn't exist anymore. Golden Valley Lutheran Junior College. It's where the uh, Perpich Center for the, uh, oh, right. the Arts yeah. is. And um, got my associate arts degree there and got married when I was 19. <laughs> wow, 19. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was the college experience like for you? Oh, college was great. You know, I I had work study, and it was in the library, and I reshelved books. Come on. That's not work. Right. You know, it could take me an hour to return 50 books to the shelf because I was looking at these books. I was reading them. So... To have access to that, to have access to, like, I adored my professors, and they, it was like they had read everything, and, um, and we had, and then there were small classes, so there was always this time to interact, mm. so I had, I had a great time. Time to interact with the classmates, or the instructors, both, both, or both, 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 both. And what I really craved was the time with the instructors. Yeah. Because I, um, I mean, I, I enjoyed my classmates immensely, but it was that time with the instructors, again, because they had done something that was attractive to me. So, like, how did you do this? How did you think about this? Where did you come from? Um, so, none of them came from, from a farm, I can tell you that. So. Right. <laughs> so, uh it was just, it was a great experience. And I think, and, I, and when, I got, when I got married, I think part of, of getting married at 19, part of that was the culture of this place, which was, you know, the joke was you would go to get your AA, your MR, or your MRS. And it's a, it's a and it may have worked 15, 20, 30 years before, uh, but this was... 77 through 79 and you know it was a small church school and I and I think a lot of parents not mine but I think a lot of parents sent their kids to this place so they'd meet other kids with similar values again there's nothing there's nothing right. wrong with that but but also part of the thinking was it would be, it, it would be perfectly acceptable to make a life decision like getting married <laughs> uh, at that age, you know, and my, and my children constantly remind me of this is like, yeah, dad, well, you were married at 19, which is their way of saying, yeah, yeah. So I'm just not going to listen to what you have to say right now. <laughs> but I think a lot of that was for me was to fill a gap. And I, and I don't even know what that gap was, you know, and, and the woman I married at the time, a lovely person, um, I'm not gonna. I'm, I would. I would never speak ill of her, but we got married at 19. You know, so 
again. Sounds me, like it's not the woman you're married to now. It's I'm not. Gathering. It's not. That, How long did that marriage last? That marriage lasted 10 years. Okay. And uh, we had a daughter together. Um, but we had actually had gone through a separation, came back together, um, thought that starting a family would be the glue. Wasn't. And this, this was my second major bout of depression. So the depression that I've experienced has always been acute, right? So, yeah. it's, so it's for a period of time, and, and it has generally been situational. So that was, that, that was a longer period of time, but it was, it was hard. I so mean, the second bout of depression was after you had been married? Yeah, it was after I'd mar- been married and we had finished school. It was my first teaching job. Okay, so you were done with college, first yeah. teaching job, yeah. Um, yeah. and married for how long at that point? So that would have been 83. So married for three, four years. Okay, yeah. and then and the marriage was going all right at that point? Yeah, I mean, in, in, that, in, in that space, I thought it was going just fine. Yeah. You know, looking back, we were roommates. We were young kids who had each other as roommates. Right. But I don't know if... You know, I have a very different, really different perspective about marriage and family now. Yeah. Right? Well, um, of course. Right. From one, one would hope, right? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> so how, tell us about the depression piece. And yeah. How did that manifest and when did you yeah. realize that it was... It was my first teaching job. Um, okay. And that was, it was brutal. It was... And you think that's the specific reason? Yeah. Um, do you think it was a combination of challenges with the wife and being so nope, young? I'm not going to pin so, any of this on her. I yeah. mean, I just think, and I don't mean to blame no, her. No, no, just, no, no, no. Just going through a challenging yeah, relationship, yeah. and it didn't seem was, challenging then. It okay, didn't seem gotcha, challenging then. Gotcha. So we moved. We, uh, I got a one-year replacement gig, it, and it was brutal to even get a job. Was this at the college level? No, it was okay. a high school. It was a um, actually a junior high English teaching position. Okay, and. Um, small town and, uh, and it was hard and I, you know, and I had gone to St. Cloud State, which has a, a great reputation as a teaching college, but I got to tell you, and again, I'm not putting this on St. Cloud State. For me, when I started that job, I felt like I knew nothing. Yeah. I had I had n- no idea. I had content. You want to talk about Hemingway? Not a problem. Yeah. But teaching, you know? It's interesting. I think a lot of the teaching universities have now moved towards a lot more time student teaching yeah. in the classroom yep. with a licensed teacher, which I yeah. think has been an amazing yeah. change. Yeah. Uh, University of Minnesota sends us teachers essentially the entire year. Right. Yep. Yep. And it's because I think you're right. And that's for so many people, right? You, you learn the content, you learn the theory, and then all of a sudden you're in a classroom and you got like five kids misbehaving and your lesson goes to crap and you're like, oh my God, what do I do here? <laughs> or you start right. a job and there's no curriculum and right. people are like, yeah, well you can, right. you can. Or the curriculum's your- a book. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Here's eighth grade. And it was uh, the green edition of Warner's Grammar. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to spend nine months with a grammar book <laughs> yeah that maybe that was the depression right <laughs> there when you heard that <laughs> it could be so i so anyway what what had happened is 
I mean, first of all, I was thrilled to have a job. Right. Right. Even if it was only going to be, in fact, it was only a six-month replacement for um, okay. someone who had, had uh, been pregnant and given birth. And, and then it parlayed itself. But a foot itself. in the door. Yeah, it was a foot in the door. And yeah. that's, honestly, that's the way I was thinking about it. Yeah. And it parlayed itself into a, into a full year. And the administration liked me. But I, t- I tell you, it was, it was so hard. We lived three blocks from school. And probably school starts August, and so probably by the end of September, I'm not sleeping. I go mm-hmm. to bed at ten, ten thirty, and I'm awake at one thirty, two. Like still awake, or like you? Wake no, no, up? no. I go to sleep. Yeah. And then I wake up, and you know, I'd I'd never had insomnia, and couldn't get back to sleep after that. So after a week of that, I just get up. I just start getting up at one thirty, two o'clock. And, and prepping and over prepping and doing all of this work and what it did oddly enough is it calmed me so you know I've done a lot I've done a lot of reading on sleep hygiene yeah that's not what you're supposed to do yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely not and a little bit of the calming I could understand because you probably felt prepared like oh absolutely. my goodness I'm going into class I'm yep. prepared yep. and on the other hand yeah the sleep hygiene is so critical right and you know I think it's clear that even in some wars they use sleep deprivation absolutely. as torture absolutely and and the sleep uh, through depression and when you are not sleeping and yeah. probably any mental illness yeah. it can be devastating yeah I just I find it debilitating you know and so I, I essentially did not sleep for eight months you know I was getting three hours four hours and so, and some people can do that I, I can't and I remember and that's actually when I think the greatest stress between my my wife and I began is because here she was with this guy that was not recognizable, you know? Yeah. Um, So I remember... And were you dumping all of your waking hours into the work? Oh, yeah. And the prep? So even after work, uh, working Because I was coaching, too. I mean, the only... So quick story. So when I do this interview... This whole thing is a story, (laughs) dude. (laughs) So I... When I do the interview, they say, so um, we see that you've run track and field, and, and uh, so would you be interested in being the track, being, the tr- being a track coach? Sure. Be happy to do that. And I see that you've played some, some volleyball in college. Would you be interested in, in being the volleyball? And I so, said, sure. It's a nice way to have a first-year teacher. Right. And do you want to be on the leadership team and the psych council? And uh... Here's the best part, though. So we need someone to assist in gymnastics. And I said, you know, I, I, I haven't even, I've never gone to a gymnastics meet. <laughs> never I don't, even seen one. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. And the principal leaned forward and he said, but will you? Yeah, I think I could do that. <laughs> first job, first interview. <laughs> oh, yeah. Commit to everything. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then what do you do? You burn out. Oh, my God. Wow. And the thing is, is that when you do that, there are environments, and I know that for me, academia, I think, is one of them, graduate school, teaching. I think that some of those behaviors are actually rewarded. No one, is, no one pulled me aside and said, dude, you've got to slow down. Right. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to take care of your marriage. Yeah. Instead, what they were saying is, 
this is great stuff. You're doing great work. Yeah, we like your hard work. Yeah. We like you, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think first-year teachers in general need a lot more support than we give them. And, uh, you know, the burnout rate in itself speaks volumes yeah. to that. Yeah. When I, you know, you had mentioned about the, the whole teaching experience, and one of the things that um, I did when I started at MCTC is the students were writing about their schooling experiences, and they wanted to teach. But they wanted to teach for very different reasons than I did. They wanted to teach because they never wanted the next generation to go through what they went through. Mm. So we this was before No Child Left Behind. Right. We had, there were fewer than... 30 community colleges in the country that had education programs and we were one of them we cr- and I was part of the faculty that designed wow, it cool. so that i mean so and part of it was and i w- to get students these prospective uh, potential teachers with students yeah. right away and i said awesome anyone can get a teaching license if they persevere the question is are you going to be there in 3 years are you going to be there in 5 in 10 yeah because that's going to be, you have to be asking yourself that now, and I know it's hard to even imagine that, but you have to start thinking about that. Right, right. So take us back to your first year teaching. So the sleep deprivation, which is massive, I mean, and you said you dealt with that like eight months. I mean, your first entire year. Yeah. And was depression manifesting in other ways too? It, um, no, probably not. Okay. Probably not. Probably it was, I was just constantly sleep deprived were you getting moody even just yeah. because of yeah i mean and you i know, was distant i'm and i was definitely distant from my spouse um i didn't have any friends in in the area right um i had some some other faculty members that i liked but you know if you're tired the last thing you want to do on a friday or saturday night is go out and so i think that's when the tension really began with with my spouse is like he, she was with me, but she wasn't with me. Right. I mean, I wasn't there. Right. There was no there there. And and so when it was only after that finished that I really I couldn't snap out of it. I couldn't get back into a sleep pattern. And then I really and then I started to get depressed. And that was and that and I think that was a really a real contributing factor to us being separated at and the when time. you say then you started getting depressed <laughs> what did that look like uh and was this after your whole year of no at, sleep it was after the they whole year of sleep so so looking back at myself i wish i could have cut myself some slack because all i wanted to do was sleep yeah so i'd sleep during the day but i wouldn't sleep at night right um you're talking you must be talking in the summer you yep, weren't sleeping during yep, the day no, during work no, no this was <laughs> june you know and i yeah and and i thought i'll give myself a week but it was the whole summer, and it was just, it was just hard to get motivated about anything. I didn't have a job. Oh I, right, your right? job was temporary. So I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to be doing, um, and and I couldn't get motivated to look. I couldn't get motivated to to move forward. Um, so in many ways, I just felt stuck. Um, which is so, yeah, I was stuck. And then when, and the strange thing, the strange thing was, is that I think I was, I was beating myself up because I remember we moved back to that tiny little town where I grew up and had a little house that we were renting. And, and I was thinking, 
I have my degree. I taught. I thought it would be different. (laughs) I think beating ourselves up is a pretty darn common string through most men, at least, with depression. And uh, I think there's there's even a connection to people who are perfectionists by nature, right? Because you set these unattainable goals and you can't reach them. And this is similar, right? Right. You're like, I finished a year of teaching. I went to college. I, you know, and now I'm. I'm sitting here without a job and feeling unmotivated and pissed at yourself for being unmotivated probably, right? Right, and, absolutely. And just spiraling down, absolutely. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was... Yeah. So how did that... How'd you get through that summer and what... Did you end up finding a job? F- found a job and it was back at Golden Valley actually and I got a job um, as a ESL instructor. Okay. Um, and were you getting any support for the depression at this point? Nope. That doesn't happen until a little bit later. Okay, okay. And some of that was my stubbornness because I, th- I th- if I remember correctly, I had resources. And I think I was in a state of denial. I, mean, I think the statistic that I've seen before is that many people li- go for like 10 years oh my God. without seeking um, support for depression. Yeah. So I don't think it's unusual, right? Like. Yeah. Buck up, just do it. Yeah. Deny it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll be okay. Got it out. Push through. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Those are all the cliches that I was, you know, yeah. I mean, and those, the thing is, is that buck up, power through, they have a place. Um, but when you're depressed and you, when I'm depressed and there's no, there's no obvious exit. Right. They just make me feel worse. Did you at this point have any kind of flashbacks or memories to when you were 14 and that whole situation? No, no, it wasn't. So you weren't concerned about that? No suicidal ideation? No, no, no suicidal ideation uh, until, until much later. Yeah. But but no, this was just, this was just a grind. It was, uh, it felt corrosive. Um, Right. It didn't, it didn't feel like I've had enough, you know, I'm going to end this or, or, there's no tomorrow. You know, I, the experience of college and the experience of that first job let me know that there could be a tomorrow. Yeah. There could be a tomorrow if, if I got my crap together. Right. You know. So uh, we, that, we actually went through a, a separation um, that lasted a couple of months. We came back together. And, you know, we came back together and just... You know, I look at us and I just, I just want to say, kids, what were you thinking? Because <laughs> we had a crappy little apartment here in Minneapolis and a crappy little car, um, and the job was not much. I mean, it, you know, it paid the rent, um, but in a way, I think it was a gift that the college gave me as a graduate. It's like. And my and it was my track coach who got me the job. You know, again, another, another adult stepping in, yeah. pulling me forward. So telling you you could do it. Yeah, yeah. I was I. It wasn't even that I was the assistant. I was the head coach of this girls track and field team that was, you know, nat- nationally ranked. <laughs> it's like I love track and field, man, but <laughs> I don't know anything about hurdles. So, uh, <laughs> um. 
and just that little taste was enough for me to realize, yeah, I don't think I want to do this as a career, but, but I, it was a, that was a good experience. And then, and as we were coming back together, we did do some couples counseling, which is not the same as counseling, but it was, it was my first, and the, that's and, pretty and impressive. Cause that was quite some time ago too, where it wasn't as common. I'm right. I'm guessing it wasn't. And even then I went begrudgingly. Okay. You know, it's like, I don't, so it was her recommendation. Oh, yeah. 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 I don't need this. And, and my, uh, my spouse at the time came from a family that was much more open about their own mental health right. um, struggles, much clearer. And so she was, you know, pulling me along, pulling me along. And, and, and that pulling was a cause of tension and friction for me. I didn't want to go. But we went. And what was useful is that once I got over myself, once I let my walls drop a little bit, I realized that it could be helpful. It could be helpful. And some of that was about me. <laughs> Maybe most of it was about me. Like, if I just let this work and stop being my own worst enemy, something good can happen. Right. Yeah. So we, so that, that kind of, that's the bracket. That was the ending piece of, of, of that bout. It wasn't like I was on top of the world. It wasn't that I was right. feeling great. It's just like, that phase is done. Got a full-time high school job in Southern Colorado. We thought this would be great. We'll get away from our extended families. And let's see if we can carve something out for ourselves. And so when, when do I... Do you think, uh, sorry to yeah, interrupt no, you, fine, but do fine. you think uh, that the couple's counseling and that whole process helped you pull yourself out of the depression? And was that something that you shared at all in the counseling, that you thought you were depressed? Uh, if I did, I don't think I did, Al. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I just think to myself back then and how hard-headed and stubborn I was. I have no doubt that my spouse did. <laughs> I don't think she had any hesitation about saying that. Again, I'm not speaking ill of her. I'm, you know, yeah, it's like, right. that was, that was. Well, like you said, her family was so much more open to conversations right. and right. which I'm sure is why she was open and suggestive right. of counseling. Right, right. right. Yeah, so so it's a, again it wasn't that I was better. It wasn't that I was back to sleeping normally. It's just that it was like a sense of purpose. Yeah. Okay, I did this. That's we're, huge too. We're doing this together now. Okay. Let's see what happens next. So that to have a sense of purpose and meaning because when I say that I feel locked, it's like I don't know, like what am I going to do? Yeah. But to have that sense of purpose was huge. So. so then you guys picked up. Picked went up, went to, to Southern Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. Went to a part in Colorado, the second poorest county in the state, where with a teacher's salary, we were in the top 10 percentile <laughs> in wow. terms of income. Uh, and just a very different world a from... starting teacher salary. <laughs> yeah, even. yeah, yeah. And it was just a very different world, and, um, and, I, and I loved it. Um, was that just because you were on this kind of nationwide search? You just thought, uh, I'll look for wherever I can get a, a new Well, yeah, because I was desperate at the time. And, I, and, um, and, and you so weren't scouring the web at that point. We right? weren't. <laughs> the internet was We weren't. A, I was, was getting a like big... a mailing list, I think, from, from my college about okay. places that were open. You know? and, right. And you'd, be, you'd get an address with a name. <laughs> and How I re- different I re- that was. Yeah. 
I can't imagine. Yeah. So I, re- I remember driving. I, I coached at the National Junior College Marathon Championships in Dewagiac, Michigan. Wow. Drove back to Minneapolis, got in the car with my spouse and a friend, and we drove to Southern Colorado for the interview. Slept maybe four hours, not because I had insomnia, but because of driving. Right. And the only thing that kept me awake during the interview was that there was a basketball um, clinic happening. So it was just the <laughs> constant right, dribble. Right, right. And I got offered the job uh, on the spot. And so I, I felt like, I tell you, those, those four years in that town and in that school were really... It sounds like Dickens, but they were the best and the worst of times because they were the best because I grew so much as an educator and as a coach. And they were the worst of times because it was the end of the marriage. Mm. And um, and so after four years, even after three years, I thought, this is great, but I feel like everything that my undergraduate education had provided, I'm, I'm tapped out. I'm maxed out. And I don't want to do this for the next 30 years. I've got to. And so the thing was, go back to school, right? Go back to school. And um, so in the meantime, my, my father, who retired at 65, gets lung cancer at uh, 66. Oh, no. And he's, he's dead at the end of 66, 67, right now. Wow. There. And I don't have a memory of going to a funeral before I went to my father's. So that was that was a moment in my life where I was in deep trouble because I didn't have I didn't know how to navigate this. And it's not like my father was like that we were tight. In fact, you know, he was a road construction worker and I was this, and I was an educator and I don't think we really understood what the other person did. He was a vet. I wasn't. And he was gone quite a, and he was a gone. bit, right? It right. sounds like. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, I was, I was angry because I thought we're not, I'm not going to have a chance to make this connection. Um, so that's, that's actually, again, thank God for contracts that provide health care. Right. And mental health care. Yes. And I went to the clinic in this tiny, you know, a town of 7,000 in Southern Colorado that had a, a, a community health clinic and spoke to a, a counselor who was maybe 10 years older than me. So you went on your own? I own. went on you my decided. own because I was desperate, Al. I was yeah. de- It was, and, and, and it's possible that my spouse at the time was telling me, you got to do this. It's yeah. possible. But I was hearing her differently if that was the case. Right. And also just my dad's death, it just, it felt like the, uh, it felt like my, the legs were taken out from under me. Yeah. So I, did, were you in a deep uh, depression at that point then? Or were you just incredibly? I was on my way. Okay. I was on my way. Okay. And you knew probably from yep. having been at yep. counseling, like, this is the step I need to do. Yep. And nobody really had to twist your arm. You were like, I need something here to, to be able to yeah. talk about my dad's death and help me through this. That's my memory. Right. I mean, you know, we, it's a long time ago. And so we tell the stories that, oh, that yeah. work, yeah, yeah, but yeah. that's my memory. It's like, right. I just, I, f- I was at my wits end and being at my wits end at 28 or 29 was different than at 14. Right. Thank God. Right. 
you know. So I remember being in this room in this town and talking for maybe 15 minutes, 15 minutes. And she looks across the desk at me and she says, you like to read, don't you? And I said, yeah. She turns around and she starts pulling off these books about adult children of alcoholics. And I took them home and I read them. And as I was reading them, I was saying, oh, oh, that's why I, oh, that's why I think that way. Oh, that's why I see the world. Oh. I mean, it was like I was looking in a freaking mirror. Wow. And there was this, and at that moment, I realized that there was this body of literature out there that about adult children of alcoholics, to which I was not privy until that moment. And that was, that was a really important moment. Because... And I, and I know I'm oversimplifying it, but to name it mm-hmm. was huge. Like I wasn't, I wasn't messed up. I wasn't lazy. I wasn't weird. I was the adult child of an alcoholic. And for that time, that, that box was one I was willing to climb in and figure out. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think... It reminds me of how some people are going through some other mental illness challenges and don't know what is going on. And when they have a doctor's appointment and somebody says, you know, this is bipolar disorder or this is this. And people have a sense, almost a sense of relief. Like, yeah. This is real. Yeah. And there's something I can do about this. Right. And learn about it. Right. 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 And no, what absolutely. was that like for you? I mean, I know you just described it as looking in a mirror. Yeah. Was this, were there incredible takeaways that, did it change your actions in any way, the way you? Not right away. Yeah. But, so by that time, and again, I might be off on the exact timing, but by that time, <clears throat> my first spouse and I had decided to get a divorce and we had a, a child. We had a little one. And here's the takeaway that is still crystal clear, is that if adult children of alcoholics don't confront that trauma, then they will pass it on to their children. Even though you may not be an alcoholic, you will pass on that trauma. And I thought, oh my God. You know, I've got this kid and the last thing the last thing I want to do is pass this on. Now, granted, it, it took me a while. I mean, I spent a year. I spent a year in the desert in some ways. I mean, it was just. Um, but even in that time where I was struggling and I was depressed, having this, having this literature, having a counselor who was talking with me. It felt it felt like like maybe some healing could begin. Right. You know, I wasn't gonna get healed, but some healing could begin. So that was that was great. And you continued with that therapist for a while? Okay, I continued with the therapist until I left Colorado and, and came up here and, and to to go to graduate school. Yeah. yeah. So how long had you seen that therapist? 
you know, not long, okay. six months. Okay. Six months. Like weekly? Probably, and yeah. certainly not more than, you know, it wouldn't be longer between appointments than every other week. Right. So six months, maybe 20 times, yeah. maybe as few as 12. Right. But it sounds like you also gained some instant trust with her after having only 15 minutes and her saying, here's some literature that's going to help you out. Yeah. And you were able to connect with her. Yeah. Pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, and it was hard because I think what I was, what I was doing was I was unpa- unpacking my relationship with my dad that whole time. Mm. Uh, it was raw, and and it was just hard. Yeah, it was really hard, and and there was a point where, um, my I don't my spouse at the time is, is moves with our daughter back to the Minneapolis area, and I'm alone. And part of my frustration as I'm unpacking with uh, the counselor is how I had felt abandoned. And now what am I doing? Right? <laughs> like, like I can still see the car driving off with my daughter in the back seat. So, so you felt like you were being abandoned. I felt like I was abandoning. You felt like you were leaving them. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's why I, I came back um, to the University of Minnesota. I, it wasn't necessarily my, my first choice. Yeah. Um, but I came back here because that's where my daughter was. Right. You know, right. And, and, and the thought of, you know, this, the, the, the mantra from the uh, ACOA books about you got to deal with this or you will pass it on, that was haunting me. And then also just in the conversations with the counselors, like, um, I don't really have a choice. This is what I, I have to do. I knew myself well enough to know that if I didn't, I wasn't going to be the type of person who could walk away from it and start a new life someplace. Right. I would be you were eternally gonna, miserable. So you were going to take this, face it head on. Yeah, that sounds really courageous when you say it. it for me, it was like there was no other option. This is what you, I had to do. You know? well, I think it's okay to. To say yes, I was courageous. You can, okay, you can admit that. Okay, because okay. I think you're right. A lot of people might have just turned another cheek and been like, you know what, this whole thing was a mistake. I was 19, right. and they're gonna be happy in Minneapolis. Yeah. I can, yeah, not Skype her, but I can right. call once in a while. Right. right, right. So I do think it was a courageous move. Thanks, and I and and I'm not, I'm not being falsely modest. It's just I know that there were a lot of competing motivations, and. Uh, but but here's what I am proud of. What I, I can feel good about is that at the center of those motivations was my child. Right. You know. Yeah. And so, and so to come back here, that that was important. Yeah. Right. And so, you came back here for graduate school. Is mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you had wrapped up your second bout of depression going through yep. therapy yep. did you do any medication or was it strictly Not therapy yet. and kind of working through just, yep just talk counseling yeah. and talk counseling and it felt in many ways it felt like a course a course of study right right so that i would have these one to one opportunities to talk with a counselor and i rarely went away without something to read mm-hmm. right and something that i could think about and to journal yep and, I mean, that was, for me, that was right up my alley. I loved to read and I loved to write yeah. anyway. Right. So this was a way to, like, I had a way to 
to do self-care in ways that my dad didn't. You know, right. for my dad, it was, it was alcohol. Yep. And I, but I had these other tools. So that, you know, again, it's just a tremendous, tremendous blessing. Yeah. yeah. What did you come back to school for at the U? Uh, for, to do graduate work in English. And I thought, <laughs> I thought um, that I would, I would become uh, an English professor somewhere. Um, and I laugh because, again, you know, I'm the first in my family to go to graduate school. So my, my level of, the instrument to measure my level of naivete had not yet been invented. <laughs> right. I mean, I had no clue what I was getting into. Um, but that said, I had a great time in graduate school. I, I had a, a, a wonderful time with my, with my cohort, with my peers. Okay. And so I... I'm, I'm, and your mental health at that point was fine. Did you hook up with another uh, yeah. therapist? Yeah, almost as soon as I got back into back here. Great. Um, and once I was in the university system, so now healthcare was available. Right. Were you worried about any kind of stigma, or or did you share with people that? Oh, you I'm were not talking a about it. <laughs> yeah. So you there know. is a little bit of shame and kind of uh, covertness to seeing. A it's therapist. definitely covert. You know, yeah. it's not. Like I think, I think about how uh, people introduce themselves, and I and you know rhetorically, I tell students like I have like twenty different introductions depending on my audience, right, and what I'm going to say about myself, right. And so at that stage in my life, none of those twenty introductions involved. Hi, I'm Michael. I suffer from depression. Yeah. That just wasn't going to happen, right. Now in graduate school. Obsessive compulsive behavior, anxiety, those are behaviors that are rewarded and valued in really unhealthy ways. So now I'm in this environment where I kind of have to watch how I'm feeling and thinking about things and actually being surrounded by colleagues who are struggling with it. That was help helpful. I don't mean to sound like I'm, you know, What's the German word? Schadenfreude. I, I wasn't taking pleasure from their suffering, right? But just seeing how people, and not just my peers, but I, but faculty members who were clearly unhappy, and it made me, it it was, is like the the keel of the boat went upright. It's like okay, I had some perspective at that point, right? So right. So mental health wise, you were seeing a therapist, but it, things were were really pretty quite good at that point. And yeah. were you seeing your daughter as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See my my daughter weekly. Um, Getting along with the ex wife at that point. You know what? Yeah, I mean, is you know the wounds of the marriage uh, of a, of the broken marriage are still pretty fresh at that time. So it's not like we're going out for a cup of coffee, right? But again, to her credit and to my credit, once we decided to get a, a, a divorce, the work that we did together for my daughter was the thing that was we had in common and I think we did it pretty well. Right. So I, and that that feels good. Yeah. So. Right. So you've taken us through two bouts of depression at this point then? Yeah. And then uh so then you finish grad school, you get a job right away? Oh, no, 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 no. So I, no, get, so, no, no. So I, I, I meet the woman who is now my wife. Okay, in grad school? In graduate school. And I did not want to get married. 
the last thing I wanted to do was get married. Um, and she's perfectly fine with me telling this story because, because she heard me telling it to her. Um, you know, but, uh, but what was interesting, you know, when I think about my small town experience, about how I couldn't see, I couldn't imagine, um, she, had, she had broken her leg skiing. And at, as when she was rehabilitating, she'd take these long walks, and I would walk with her. And we would talk about what, what would it be like to grow old? What, what do you think that's going to be like? What do you think it would be like to grow old together? I'd never had those conversations with anyone. And so, you know, that, that worked. And, um, and, we, and so we got married. You know, my, uh, my father died in 88. My mother died in 91. And just months after my mother died, we, we got married. And so that, that was great. Were and you able to handle your mom's death better than what you went through with your dad? Infinitely better. What's that? Infinitely better. Yeah, okay. And part of it was because I was here. I was local. And so my mom uh, died of, of emphysema. And we knew she was dying. Right. And I had five, uh, four of my siblings and myself were able to develop a rotation. So we were driving up to this small town about once a month. Okay. Um, and so I was able, and with my daughter in tow, and with my 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 wife, my second wife, coming with, and so to just to be with my mom, and again, the way that my mom, I think, chose to deal with her her death was yeah. very different, in that she wanted to be with us, and right. she want and she, and I'm not suggesting my dad didn't, but I saw it with my mom. She wanted to be with us. She treasured those moments together um and then we were there on a weekend i saw her the night before she died i drove back the very next day i drove up and all of my siblings and their significant others spent the entire week in that house together and we were together so i wasn't alone right so that that felt like such a different experience, yeah. such a different experience. And, and I was okay with it. Probably gave you a little more sense of closure too, that you could have with your mom. Absolutely. And actually, and with my dad, you know, I mean, once, because when she dies, now we're selling the house. And so we're going through all of the, the rooms and we're cleaning it out and, and we are finding my father's stash of bottles in different places, but we're also, you know, we're finding, I found a box, Al, of love letters that my father wrote to my mother when he was in the Philippines and in Fort Hood, Texas. Wow. You know, I, I thought my dad wrote love letters. And there was a box, a huge box of cassette tapes that he had. He didn't have time to write when he was working overseas. He was in Saudi Arabia working for Aramco. He didn't have time to write. But as he was driving around the work site, he would tape record these letters to my mother. I mean, so it was pretty darn romantic, romantic in a way that I thought, who is that? Who is that guy? (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it was, I mean, that was healing, right? Um, so that was good. That was, that was all of that was good. And then, um, 
and I'm going to graduate school, and you know, again, I'm 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 more I'm I'm more mindful of my mental health. Things are good. I have a daughter, another daughter, who doesn't sleep, so that my sleep is disrupted. That's okay. That you know, again, it's not it's not debilitating. And then at 39, um, we have uh, another child. And I was not, I was really concerned about having a third child. Uh, I was concerned because I was 39. I was concerned because I didn't know if I could manage it, if I could handle it. And it's and it's stupid, but it's the basketball metaphor. Like with two kids we could play man to man, but now we had to play a zone and I didn't know I didn't know if I could do it. Right. Where were you at as far as work and graduate school yeah. at this point? So I had started I had um finished my master's degree. Okay. And in ninety five a job came open at Minneapolis, which was great because again my my eldest child is still in Minneapolis. Right. So I, I needed to stay here. Yeah. So when that job was offered, it was like, yes. And you got that job just before the third kid came around? Yeah. So the, um, the third child is 98. Okay. So three years. And so I, and in community college, the tenure window is very small. So I had tenure. Great. So things are, are going along. But you're starting to really worry as this third kid is coming along. It's so strange because my hands are sweating again. Had you, had you guys, <laughs> and I don't know if listeners know this, but you're actually here in the basement and we're eye to eye, right? Like most of my interviews are Skype right, uh, right. without video. But, right. So this is a, a change for me. That's a, it's a pleasant change. So it's great to be here in person with you. So, um, so you've got tenure, but yeah. you're having a third kid. And was this a discussion of, you know, should we or should we not have a third kid? And did you agree to this or was this? No, no, a, I, we agreed to it. Okay. I mean, we agreed to it. And, and I, it wasn't like my situation where we had to convince each other we wanted a third and we ended up with twins. <laughs> so, you know, no matter how difficult it was for you, and I was probably your age too, right. now that I think about it. Right. So you're getting concerned, right? You agree to have a third and it yeah. happens. Yeah. And is it kind of through the pregnancy where you start yeah. having these doubts? Yeah. And are you talking yeah. to your wife about it or bottling this up? Bottling it up. Yeah. Of course, you're a man. It's what we do. It is, but it's so... But you had a lot of counseling, so maybe... I did. Prior to this, right? And you I knew did. about talk therapy. You yes. You were a supporter of it. It had helped you. Yeah. It was as if I had willfully forgotten everything I had learned. So I'm not sleeping and I'm working a lot. I mean, I'm working a lot, 14, 16 hours a day. And on the weekends, I'm, I'm working. Was this part of your way of avoiding? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so for your dad, it was the booze. For you, right. it was the work. Right. Pour yourself into that. Right. You know, and at the time, I think I was able to fool myself into saying, this is, the, you, you know, you, you have another child on the way. You need to climb the ladder. <laughs> I don't, right. you know, I laugh because it's like, 
what ladder? <laughs> you were tenured, and <laughs> I, I know, uh, right, right. So that horizontal <laughs> ladder there. <laughs> so it was just, it was crazy, and I, and that was the last depression, and it, but it was the hardest. Yeah. In that, it felt very public. And I've had students who have stayed in touch. And in fact, one student who actually was part of a research project that we did, that, that I, I did with my colleague. And when I told her about it, because she was very open to me about her own depression, and I said, yeah, I was depressed that entire time. And she looked at me and she goes, I didn't know. how." Mm-hmm. You know, and I said, well, how would you, right? Because I think... That's the mask of depression, right? You put that mask on... And man, is it, it is exhausting. Yes. Because I'm, I'm able to get through the day. And I knew this. I knew this. I would go home and I would say, I got nothing. And, you know, I knew that I was, whatever energy I, <clears throat> I had, I was doing it at work. I was giving it at work. And when I came home, I had nothing. And this is why your wife is pregnant, right? And she's yep. probably got her own and emotional... At, right, and now she, we have the child, and I'm still... Like, it starts while my wife is pregnant, and it continues probably through my son's first birthday. Okay. This bout of depression. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... Um, Tell us more about the depression and the, how it manifested, and... I know you poured yourself into work. Yeah. So So this is a part that I'm not entirely comfortable talking about. Okay. Yeah, know? no problem. But but um I stopped taking care of myself. I lost a lot of weight because I just refused to eat. Intentionally, would you say? Probably not at the beginning, but then later on, yeah. So for me in my depression, Um, I lost a ton of weight and for me it literally I didn't it wasn't an intentional I'm not gonna eat I literally had such a knot in my stomach I felt like I couldn't and food wouldn't go down yeah and I lost I think like 50 pounds and so here's another situation I was talking about grad school and about how certain behaviors are rewarded right so in this culture for me losing weight got me positive attention Right. You know, and I've always been lean. Yeah. But it's so messed up. And so I, again, insomnia comes back. I'm I'm not eating. Um, when I'm not working, I'm running a lot. Um, Man, I know some guys who went through depression who said that running was their outlet. And they were, I mean, it was a little OCD as well. Where, I mean, literally, I'm not just using yeah. that term. Right, right. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they were counting steps. Yeah. And well, so I, so here's the thing. I uh, I think that, well, now, in my late 50s, absolutely. Like, there are three things I know I have to do when I start to feel it. Because I still feel it coming. Um, but I can, there are three things I can do, and one of them is working out. But at the time... Um, it wasn't healthy. Yeah. You know? Can you explain that for the listeners? I Like, what does it mean to, to be a healthy workout now? Sure. Versus something that's unhealthy. Sure. Working out. So when, when I, 
was in college, I, I ran on the team. And yeah. this was back, so to put it in context, this is mid-70s. And this was at a time when long distance meant long distance. It was very common. I went 14 weeks in a row where I ran over 100 miles every week. And that was average. You know, Jerry Lindgren, uh, he was sort of the model. He was running 200 miles a week. I don't drive 200 miles in a week, right? So a lot of distance. And fasting was something that runners experimented with. Right, as a way to the whole idea was get as light as you can so you can power through the runout. Now, in 2018, we call that an eating disorder. Right. 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 So, so when, so for me, when, when this happened, um, when I was turning 40 and my, my son was being born, um, unhealthy, like I knew it was unhealthy, when, not when I put on my running gear, not when I went out the door. But when I got to the point where I could turn around at four miles, I didn't. Right. And I just kept going. And my feet would hurt, and I would just keep going. And my knees would hurt, and I would just keep going. And I had to be back home by 4 o'clock to help, and I just kept going. Instead of getting back at yeah. 4 o'clock. Yeah. So it was your escape. It was a way to stay away from that, right? Yeah. And if I got any pushback, it's like I got to take care of myself. I mean, I'm doing, you know, and the thing is, is that it's, it's possible that I was, that there was a piece of that was taking care of myself, but it was also, um, it was a way to not confront the garbage that, that I was bringing into my life at the time. Again, I made so many bad decisions and, and I stopped taking care of myself and the running has the, you know, it has the patina of health about it, right? you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't. You know, and I've and I've seen other people who struggle with it too. Yeah. You know, so. Wow. So running, losing weight. Yeah. Not eating. Yeah. Intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. So it it all it just it's a downward spiral. It's a bad. Were you situation. still seeing a therapist at this point? Yeah, I started okay. to see a therapist, and oh, so you restarted? I did. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, this again. I didn't. I didn't have counseling over a period of time. Right. I think the longest I've ever seen a counselor was for a year, and it was this last time. Yeah, just to get you through these kind of right. as you described them, acute bouts yeah. of the depression. Yeah. And this one started with me. Like I did. I didn't have suicidal ideation, but I came home one night, and I closed the garage door, and the car was running, and I let it run. I don't know, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, and it kept running. And I just thought, this is messed up. This is, what are you doing? You know, inside that door, you've got (laughs) three, four people that love you. What are you doing? Turned off the car, went in the house, and made some decisions. I mean, and one of them was like, you got to get back to therapy. And that was the first time that I had tried, that I actually tried some, some medication. Okay. And I, I can't even remember what it was, but I remember taking it for six weeks, only six weeks. Yeah. And what I remember in those six weeks that my emotions um, squeezed down, so I was flatlining emotionally. Right. 
and ah, uh, that's what I needed. I I needed that deadening, mundane, boring flatline. Right. Because what I was experiencing was it was going to destroy my marriage. It was going to destroy my job. It was going, and I may have taken my life. Right. You know. So, were you resistant to the medication oh idea? Oh my God! At yes. <laughs> Al, I, I didn't take aspirin. I didn't take ibuprofen. Right. I mean, I was, and a lot of it was that, like, that was my reaction to my father. Okay. Right. And so, whether it's true or not, one of the things that I came, the narrative that I told myself is that. I do have an addictive personality, so I'm just going to be, I want to be aware of that. So, you know, literally no aspirin, no ibuprofen. Right. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't want to put anything in my body that I thought I would have to rely on the next day. So was it the psychologist that convinced you to try some meds? You know, I had been offered medication in the past. Okay. And... That first visit, and I told the counselor what had happened, and he said, I think that you should be on this medication. And I said, okay. And I remember being, it was really clear in my head, it's like, this is the first time this is, you're saying okay. And, you know, like, what does that mean? Yeah. You know. But so while resistant, it just sounds like, you were a bit desperate. And, Absolutely. And when somebody brought it to your attention, you were kind of like, yeah, yeah, why not? I mean, like, if they would have said, something. here, Michael, eat this jar of olives, because yeah. I would have said, sure. You know, I mean, I was, it really was. It's funny, because I've, <sighs> I've used that analogy and heard many people say the same analogy, and it's been a much worse option than olives, even. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? Like, they could no, be like, take this. It's going to help you. And you'll be like, all right, doggy poop. Great. Let me try it. If you th- say that's going to help, because right. man, I need something. Right, right, and I, and really, what I yeah, I just I wanted, I wanted a life jacket. I wanted something that kept me alive the next day. That had yeah. me pulling into the car, into the garage and turning off the car. Right, and not having that crazy, even albeit brief, crazy time. And it did, and it worked. It worked, and I'm to this day eternally grateful that I did it. And I'm also grateful <clears throat> that, again, knock on wood, that it was something that I, I that I didn't have to do, yeah. because that the world, my emotional world, did feel so constricted at the time. Right. Um, but I knew I knew that like this, I this is what something I had to do. Right. So, what, uh, so immediately did you feel the effects of the medication? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like within 24 hours. Because a lot of times they say, you know, for the antidepressant effect to really take hold, or at least the full impact is right. typically described as like four to six or six right. to eight weeks. Right. Right. So, and, and you know what? In, in terms of chemically what was happening in my body, that may have been true. Yeah. But I honestly think that. Again, it was this desperation. Yeah, and I'm looking at, and I'm I I come from a a background where if you have an MD after your name, I'm gonna trust you. Yep. And someone says take these. Yep. 
So I honestly think that some of what I was feeling was this panacea. It's yeah. Like, okay. A bit of the placebo effect. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I think placebo, that, exactly, that yeah. definitely, yeah. you know, can be a part of it. Yeah. And nothing wrong with that either. Oh, no. Right? No. Um, and, and if they were giving me cubes of sugar that they said, I, I, it, it didn't matter. It's yeah. like, okay. It was a sense of hope. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like you said, you trust yeah. the doctor. Yeah. And uh, it gave you hope that, like, I don't have to stay yeah. in this deep, deep, dark place. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you started um, feeling better immediately, but you still... you described... Well, not feeling better, not feeling. Okay. And okay. that was important. Yeah. Because my emotions were all over the place. Right. And so what I felt, I, I didn't feel anything for six weeks. Right. You know? And then... You know, and what's interesting is then as I'm climbing out or whatever that reconnection, reconnecting moment is, it was like I had been in this, I had been asleep for a year and a half, but the people around me hadn't been sleeping. That was hard. That was really hard. Say more about that. What do you mean exactly? So come up as I'm climbing out of this last bout of depression and there's my wife and I'm I'm kind of devastated at what she's had to go through. And I'm looking at my kids who are, you know, 12 and 6 and 1. So that was hard. Yeah. That was really hard. Hard knowing what you had put them through. Hard knowing what I had put them through. Hard realize, and again, this is the bit about my father, feeling abandoned by my father, that yeah. I had abandoned them. Um, and I had. And so coming out of that was... Um, you know, it's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna go Jewish here. So <laughs> so it's that moment of teshuva of returning and when you return you turn and you look. Um and whatever had happened in the previous forty years of my life, at that moment I didn't run. And started to grind it out that sounds so macho started to started to take care of myself yeah. in ways that meant that I could also take care of the people that I loved right does that oh absolutely okay. you started to deal with it right yeah you were, you were facing the fact that hey I'm sick here I have some work of my own to do yeah to continue my recovery yeah. so that I can get back to taking care of my family and yeah. get back to working the job that I know I can do. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, though, because you, you talk about getting on medication pretty quickly once you had this kind of thought in the garage with the right. car running right. and how that did a really good job of numbing you pretty quickly, yeah. yet you describe it as about a year and a half or so right. of depression. So can right. you help? 
reconcile those two pieces. Right. So up to the up to the garage scene, it's probably nine months of depression, and then it's still another nine gotcha. months. And and but it's nine months of depression where. You know, so, so many of the metaphors that I use for depression, uh, they're, they're incomplete. Like climbing out. Like you can climb out of something, right. you know? Um, it's just... So this, the, the next nine months that begin with the six weeks of medication, and, and then I have another seven and a half months, where mostly it's about, and I'm seeing a counselor. Yeah. But mostly what I'm trying to do is mend trying to mend myself I'm trying to mend my family I'm trying to be present um, present not just to them but present to myself mm-hmm. um, in ways that I I probably hadn't been honest with myself hadn't been honest in in how I was working with my relationships so um, but it, and it took a lot of time, and a lot of it was just me feeling so sick and ashamed of myself and embarrassed. But I got to tell you, this the last time. So, I, so I make a distinction between guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Nothing good can come of shame. I think shame is highly overrated. But guilt, at least the way that I'm thinking about it, if guilt moves you to correct then it serves a purpose. Right. So those next seven and a half months, I was still depressed, but a lot of it was just, it was reckoning. Yeah. I was, I was trying to reckon with what had happened. Right. Right. So what, uh, was it your fear of medication? I'm curious what got you off of medication at six weeks Yeah. when you still had several months to go before, yeah. like, was there talk with your nope. counselor who, nope. You I just came in and own. said I just came in and said I stopped. And he said, Are you this is this wise? <laughs> uh I said, I don't know if it's wise or not, but I, I kind of had to. Because again it was um the my my emotional range was just so compressed. Right. And I and and I needed to I needed that to broaden a bit. And so, you know, and so when I say it was compressed, I think, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a counseling background. But for me to, to get off the medication, and again, I had seven and a half months, nine months, however long, to get to, to until I could, could feel like I could stand on my feet, so to speak, uh, meant that I could feel that. I could feel the um, I could feel the debt. I could feel the debt that I owed to the to others, to the ones closest to me. So for me, depression was ultimately. I mean, it's for me, it was one of the most narcissistic things because it was all about me. The recovery piece of it, or actually going through the in depression. It, in it, in it, it's like, what's wrong with me? Why? Yeah. Why do I feel this way? Why? And there's no future for me. Right. I don't. F- there's no sense of hope for me. You know. I re- and I remember. I remember teaching a. I think it was an ethics course or something. And John Stuart Mill's 
philosopher who also struggled with depression, who wrote something akin to, to the idea that when he felt at his lowest was when he reached out to, to do work with others, to help, to help others. I got that. That rings so true for me. Like in that in that time after the medication, to to feel like I was dealing with the mistakes that I'd made, that I was going through this period of reckoning, was something that didn't feel great. But that's life. Life. And again, I think the culture sort of sells us that you should be happy. You should be happy. Right, right. But when you make a mistake and, and you hurt people, you should, you should feel something with that. And when you hurt yourself, you should feel something with that. So that's my rationalization, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so I don't have any regrets about it. Um, again, I'm glad that I started taking it. I think it saved my life. Um, but I don't have regrets about about stopping it. Um, if I'd stopped taking the medication and stopped seeing a counselor, that wouldn't have been. I mean, even in my stubbornness, I knew that that was not that was not a good idea. So that was kind of your fallback. Like, I, I'm going to stop the medication. I'm still going to be working. I can't better. I'm still yep. going to see a therapist. Yep. Because I think in. For me, and and thinking about that particular situation, I would have been frightened, having been so down. Right. That if I stop this medication, yeah. And again, it could be that placebo effect, even. Right. 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 Like right. I stopped. Right. I'm going to be spinning down. Right. Um, so well, I was I never feeling. I I never felt a sense of urgency to get off medication because. I thought, like, if this is one of the things that is stopping me from being in that hellhole yeah. that I was in, yep. I'm not going to give it up. I'm yeah. not going to give up any single piece that might be helping me stay away from where I was because right. I don't ever want to be there again. Right. No, and I and I appreciate that. And I would never, I would not recommend setting aside medication and I wouldn't and then and again it's like, and we should say since people are listening right. that if you do decide to stop a medication you probably should do it you should do it under consultation of, a, of, a, of your doctor yes uh, and not stop cold turkey especially because some of the medications there you really do have to wean off right I mean it can um, be it can be a dramatic uh, yeah. a dramatic situation but that's awesome that you were able to do it and you did it fine and it worked for you yeah, and I'm I'm really fortunate, right? Because yeah. it could have gone south, but and a and a lot of it was again this my history of, you know, I I I didn't drink alcohol until I was 21. I've never been drunk. I no aspirin, no ibuprofen. So yeah, you know, right. Like, I'm not. There was I'm, already a kind of a resistance to right, medication right. to start with. So six weeks felt like a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know? But um. But uh, so. So it worked out. I'm fortunate. I'm lucky it worked out the way that it yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. So. so in the end, I mean, you were working through therapy. Um, you took the medication for six weeks. Anything other than therapy that helped you work through the, those remaining Writing. months? Writing. Yeah, journaling. Continue to journal. And then, and so... So when during those nine months after the after the garage scene and 
I'm getting counseling and I'm trying to do this reckoning. I'm doing a lot of journaling, a yeah. lot of writing and and again, it's like it's like I said before, it's it was as if I had willfully forgotten everything. So for me writing it down was a way to not forget. And I and so I made some promises. I don't know if that's the right word. I made some commitments that that I to to so that I could take care of myself. And one of them was in the classroom if students are writing about their own mental health, I'm going to acknowledge that I too struggle with mental health and we'll move on. And I'll leave it up to them if they want to talk. If they don't want to talk, that's fine. I just want them to know that yep, you're not alone. Right. That yeah. alone is huge. Yeah, and in fact it's made it's made a world of difference with with a lot of students who has have stayed in touch. Yeah. Know? And have decided to take you up on talking yeah. about it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what's interesting is, I, again, I, I tell them, I am not a counselor. Yeah. And I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I'm just another human being who struggles with mental health. And I just, I just want to acknowledge that. Well, I think that's wonderful. And I hope that that's something our listeners get from it is that you don't have to be a therapist. You don't have to be a doctor to listen to somebody, right. to be empathetic, right. to lend an ear, yeah. you know, and show that you care, yeah. like really care, yeah. um, can be enormous. Yeah. Right. You open that opportunity for some people to speak. And that might've been the first time that they've opened up to anybody. Yeah. Because you open that door. Yeah. That makes me anxious when you say that. But yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, door it, that I well, think needs to be open. Well, because there's a, you know, there's, it's a tremendous responsibility too. And so, and I, and I want to be up to that responsibility. I want, you know, if I'm, if I'm opening a door, I want to be up to that responsibility. So, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. And at the same time, You've mentioned quite a few times, even in this interview, like you're not a doctor, right? So right. you're not there to give them medical no. advice, no. right? You're there as a caring adult who's right. been through this right. and, and understands right. and can share that with them. Right. And I'm sure if somebody, you know, happened to tell you that they were suicidal, you'd take the right steps that you know you have to take have to support somebody. Have walked them from the classroom to the council. You have done that. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Which is just a little soapbox, like education systems, especially in the 21st century, need to have mental health professionals nearby. Yes. Yes. And it's primarily for the students, but I'm, I want to suggest that it's not just for the students, but, but primarily for the students. Right? Yeah. Because, again, for so many, I look at these 18, 19, 20, or 30, or 40-year-old people who are starting out in college, which is stressful, oh, and, yeah. right? And now they're dealing with all this other stuff. And, and I'm thinking, I, I remember when I was 14, and there, were, I, you know, there, there may have been resources, but I didn't know how to access them. That, that is something I can help them. It's like yes. we have counselors. By the way, and we have and and we have a student uh, health center. There are things that you can that we can do, and I've learned I can't just tell them. Yeah. That I have to walk with them. Yeah, 
That is fantastic. I um I just heard on NPR just like a month or two ago. It's the first time that Boynton 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 uh, Health Services has more behavioral specialists than they do medical uh, physical doctors. And it just uh, makes so much sense to me. Yeah, it does make sense, and I love the spin they put on it. You know because. Many people's minds probably went where mine went, which is, oh, my goodness, so many more people that need help. But, you know, the guy who leads that program for the mental health aspect mentioned how it's also a wonderful thing because it's people who are saying, I need help, that are reaching out for those services rather than keeping them bottled up and trying to deal with it on their own. And I, and I think you know, we were talking about courage before, and I do think that that is, that is courageous when yeah. someone is young and... And when I say young, I mean young in, in the education system, yeah. right, whether they're 18 or 40 or whatever, to be able to say, I need, I need help. Right. Right. And I'm, uh, I'm kind of in public education now. I'm moving towards uh, really trying to put a light on the fact that I believe our educators need a lot more mental yeah. health support. Yeah. And our urban educators um, are dealing with kids who are going through complex you know, trauma day in and day out. And, and we're dealing with those students and there's a lot of secondary trauma that our staff go through. Absolutely. And uh, I think we need a better system of supports for staff too. Absolutely. Right. Um, Right. And I think, you know, there's a, um, a high turnover in terms of educators, um, in school settings. And, and I think, um, what you're talking about really could it, could could address that in right. some ways. Um, yeah. I wish, yeah, I wish that would have been, I, I wish that that would, I wish so many things, but I wish that just being able to talk with my peers when I had started out and to have someone guide us. Right. I wish that that existed. Yeah. And, and the chances, you know, maybe some of my peers would have been willing to talk, so really what I'm saying is Michael. I wish I would have been <laughs> right, <laughs> willing right. to talk. So yeah, yeah. So that last bout of depression that you told us about, and you definitely described it as the worst, most yeah. intense. Yeah, um, was how long ago? Uh, nineteen years. Nineteen. So for nineteen years, you'd say you've been mentally pretty fit. Yeah. Good. So if you That's want, you know, awesome. to use the the physical health analogy, like I've had sniffles. Yeah. I've had a head cold. Right. In terms of mental health. But I'm just much, uh, and I don't know what happened, I'm just much more aware of, of when it's coming, you know? Like last night, I didn't sleep. And I'm in a situation now in my life where normally I sleep. Yeah. And when I woke up this morning, and I'm making the pot of coffee, I'm thinking, I remember what this feels like. Yeah. And this is what I have to do. That's awesome. I, yeah. I think that... You know, that is one of the benefits, I feel like, of having been through it. Yeah. Like, if you can spot it early and yeah. s- and have some indicators, and everybody's might be a little different, yeah. right? Yeah. But if you have your own tells yeah. that you know this isn't, this isn't really how it should be, yeah. and you know what it could lead to, then, like, for me, I, I try to, you know... Jump, jump on the elliptical a little bit more, or maybe I realize I haven't been exercising and that's right. my problem. Right. Or I'll pull out my journal as well right. and start journaling more about it and, right. and go to every tool in my toolbox and hit them hard. Right, right. Um, I do wonder oftentimes about people who do relapse and 
because they talk about, you know, if you've been through one bout of depression, your chances increase for a second. If you've been through two, your chances of a third increase. But I wonder if some of that data is a bit skewed because it is some people who maybe take a medication for six weeks, stop, and right. that's all they do. Right. Right. No life change. Right. No real um, introspection right. about these telltale signs. Right. No changes in life. No. Right. Um, and then they see it happen again. Right. right? And right. Um, I do believe, and maybe it's partly just me being hopeful, that those of us that are aware and and recognize it and are attuned to it will will not have it happen again, right? And I would imagine, I don't know if there's data that supports this, but I would imagine every year out from that last episode is all the the stronger you yeah. are and the less chance of another episode. Yeah. I have to believe that. It feels that way. So yeah. my my son, my who was born around the time that my last bout happened, just finished his first year of college. And awesome. as he was preparing to go, and I knew he was he was not going to be going here in the Twin Cities. I knew he was going to be going out state. I had a, a feeling of foreboding. So now here comes another life change. Yeah. Uh, where we've had children in the house, and now we're not going to. Yeah. And what was interesting is I talked about it. <laughs> Which wow. it seems so simple, doesn't yeah. it? But I talked about it a with my man spouse. who talked about the <laughs> how difficult it might be. Exactly. Yeah. So we, my spouse and I talked that entire year, his senior year. Yeah. And when he senior year of high school, high school before he was going right, to be taken off. Talked during the summer, drove him to Chicago, cried on the way back to about Rockford, and then kept talking and kept talking once we got yeah. there and so it was so some of that that was one of the things i knew don't isolate yourself yeah don't isolate even even when you want to isolate yourself don't yeah go and and if you if your spouse if my spouse is available that's like the first stop that's a great piece of advice yeah. right there even yeah. when you feel like isolating when you're going through depression yeah. Don't. Yeah. I still go to a men's support group for yeah. depression and anxiety, yeah. and there is a, a guy just last night or two nights ago it was, and he talked about how he's starting to isolate. And he's been doing pretty well. He went through a recent divorce, but he's noticing that he's isolating. And all the guys were like, you know, giving suggestions yeah. like yeah. we do. We don't like demand. It's a really good supportive yeah. group. And some guys were like, you know, you got to get out. And, and, and he said, and this is so common, like, I know it. Like, I know in my mind I have to do it, but I, it is so hard. Mm -hmm. And it is. Yep, absolutely. And, and nobody mm. has said recovering from depression is easy. Right. And I've mentioned probably uh, many times on this show, maybe too many, <laughs> but I think it's really interesting, the, the catch-22 of depression. Like, every single thing you have to do in order to recover from depression is compromised by the very symptom of depression, which yep. makes it so challenging. Right. Right. You talked about eating healthy, but not eating. Right. You got to eat healthy. You got to socialize, but you don't want to. You got to exercise, but you have no energy right. or, or you, you exercise. To the, right. Yeah. 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 But that's great. That is fantastic that you knew, like, this is going to be really hard on me as a father with my kid going to college. Right. And I'm not going to just sit and let it eat away at me this time. I'm going to talk to my wife. And you know what was great about it? is in that conversation, it made my sadness 
okay. Yeah. You know, I want... I want it. I want to live my life with that full emotional range, right? Absolutely. And not just not just all the positive ones, but the the, the ones that we see as negative. They're there too, yeah, and I think yeah, they yeah. teach us something. So in that conversation, it was okay to be sad. Yeah. And I remember when I was forty and my my son was born. For a long time, probably through our forties, when I would get sad, my my spouse would ask me, "Are you okay?" And it was annoying for a while. Right. And then I realized that, well, yeah, of course, you know, because she's, she doesn't want to go through that again. And so I had to find ways to talk about, no, I'm, I'm sad. I'm not depressed. They're not the same yes. things. Or I'm, I'm low energy today, but I'm not depressed. Yeah. Or I'm tired, right? So these are all parts of life. But I think when you're depressed... It is so hard to sift that stuff yes. apart, right? And because and for me, at least, one of the things that just disappeared was clarity and perspective. Right. You know? So. Yeah. Well, you, another perfect example is you just said you, you had a rough night of sleep. Yeah. But you can be okay with that and know, well, that doesn't mean I'm going through depression, even though I couldn't right. sleep through my depression. Right. I, I had a rough night of sleep. No big deal. Right. I had a lot on my mind. Right. You know, and. Right. And I'm going to get up, I'm going to have my coffee, maybe I'll go for a, a run, a healthy run. A bicycle ride. A bicycle ride, <laughs> yeah, right? So, and, and to see somebody. Yeah. To talk with somebody. Make that right. social connection. Right. So it's, they, they seem like such simple things to do. They don't, they don't demand a great deal of me, and I'm, and I'm kind of grateful of that. I just have to be mindful enough. Absolutely. To follow through on them. Yeah. And it is a hell of a lot easier to follow through on when you're not in that depressed state. Absolutely. Right. So whatever you can do to catch it, mm-hmm. like we talked about, and mm-hmm. to do it while you're not mm-hmm. in that deep, dark state mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. so important. Mm-hmm. One other thing, too, though, that I think has been really helpful, because starting to talk more openly about dealing with depression has meant that colleagues talk to me differently yeah and and it's okay right Right. oh you have depression that's okay you struggle with anxiety that's okay whether it's okay or not but you know what I'm saying is like yeah people have their stuff people and it's just part of who we are and we're all sort of bumbling along here trying to make sense of it doing the best that we can yeah and I know that with some of my closer friends who have talked about, because I've started to talk about depression, they've talked. One of the things I said is, when you feel that coming on, I hope you feel okay reaching out. You know, send me an email, call me. Let's, yes. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's just, even, even if it's to talk about other things, just let's, I'm here. I, yeah. want, I want to help. That is so important. Yeah. But it doesn't happen if you're not talking, right? Yeah. If you're not, so that's one of the reasons why, when I've seen you present, I thought this is beautiful, and I want to commend you. For, no, thank you. Because I, I think you are bold and courageous to to not talk about it once, not talk about it twice, but to keep coming back to this and making it something that's important 
not just for you, but I think you have a real keen sense that this is important for so many people. Right, right. Ah, thank you for that. Yeah, it's become uh, a passion of mine for sure. Yeah. I mean, this feeds me to yeah. to support others, to talk about the depression, to to hear your stories of how you help people just mm-hmm. by being there and sharing mm-hmm. your story. And I think the more we do that, the more we show that we care and that we can talk about depression yeah. without having shame about it. Yeah the more we can chip away at the stigma yeah. and the more healthy we will be. I mean, our the suicide numbers continue to skyrocket and it is scary and we need to see some, some big uh, significant changes here. Amen. I, I absolutely agree. So, um, you know, before we wrap up, I know you talked about quite a few different strategies and tips that help yeah. you stay mentally healthy. Yeah. Do you have any kind of final words for somebody who might be struggling or, or to sum it up, any words of hope or wisdom that you want to share? Uh, that's, you know, it's such a loaded question. I mean, part of part of what I've tried to do is, and my spouse takes me to task on this, but I, I, I compartmentalize the type of mental health issues that I've had. So, you, I mean, you picked up on my wording right away acute, not chronic, right. situational. Right? Yep. I, I guess the, the advice that I would give is that there are resources out there. And there are people who care about mental health. There are people that care about you. And sometimes they might be the same person. And... If you can take that first step, make that first phone call, send an email, if you can connect, chances are good that something something very positive out of that is going to happen. And, and it, it, it has the potential to change your life. To change your life. Yeah, absolutely. So. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I want to thank you for your time here. Thank you for opening up mm. and sharing your story. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it took us a few cancellations, <laughs> reschedules, some technical <laughs> issues. So I appreciate your uh, patience with me mm-hmm. and uh, your willingness to, to share. I, it doesn't sound like you've shared with too many before this. No, no, no. Yeah. No, and, and actually when uh, at one of the presentations that you did, I thought, if I can convince Al to interview me, this will be another step. Yeah. So I want to thank you for creating an environment where that could happen for me. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. You are very welcome. Good. All right. Well, let's stay uh, in touch. Absolutely. And stay healthy. You too. All right. <laughs> thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.